Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author, Mark Fontecchio. One of the greatest strengths of this church is that we take the time to go line by line through the precious Word of God. And yet there are times where I feel, as a pastor, that we need to stop to address certain doctrines, topics from the Word of God to build our understanding. This is one of those times. But we're going to address the topic of the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and this will take us several weeks. There's a new worship center being built in what used to be East Berlin. It represents the ultimate secular view of religion. It also reflects the kind of future that the American left has in mind for the United States of America. It is specifically called the House of One. To be built, you already don't like the title, I heard you guys. (laughs) It's to be built on the foundations of an old demolished church. The intent is specifically for Christians, Jews, and Muslims to worship under one roof. Each religion will have their own meeting place with a central hall where people can come together to learn about the different faiths. Roland Stolte, a theologian involved in the project, said East Berlin is a very secular place, so religious institutions, he said, have to find new language and ways to be relevant, to make connections. In other words, think about what he just said. He said religion must conform, not challenge the secular mindset. That's what he just said. The house of one embodies the secular views of religion that will become more and more common right up until the time of the rapture of the church. And then it's going to definitely be the mindset of the tribulation. You don't want to be here, which will lead to the worship of the Antichrist under the leadership of the false prophet. It's not Yahweh being worshiped. It's not Jesus being worshiped here. But diversity, inclusion, it is the secular globalist agenda that seeks to replace faith in the word of God with political agendas. And this leads to tyranny. We got a small taste of this under COVID. There's more yet to come. Which is what we're seeing now worldwide, the hypersensitive, woke, globalist and secular agenda that comes straight from the pits of hell. It is embodied in the cancel culture because it is nothing more than Satan's attempt to stamp out God's truth. And this puts the church of Jesus Christ on the front lines. You choose each Sunday morning which side you're on. You vote with your feet. What I believe will be helpful for us as Christians moving forward is to be grounded in truth. Grounded in our understanding of doctrine. Grounded in our understanding of the doctrine of the local church. Now, when I say the word church, you may think about a building. You may think about a denomination, but I mean the biblical definition of a church. 
I want to understand, as I come to the scriptures, statements like this, statements like verse 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where it says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Or I want to understand words like this. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. Church, church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I want to understand that as a Christian. The Bible explains the church using that Greek word, ecclesia. Now, if you're thinking this is a word that Christians invented, you're wrong. It's not. It was a common Greek word used to describe a gathering for a specific purpose because God spoke in time to a people, and he was using a specific language, mostly Hebrew, mostly Greek. And the wise student of Scripture considers the actual language that God used when he spoke and how it relates to a given meaning. Just to give you an example, in Athens... And Ecclesia met twice a week to discuss civic affairs. I'm not talking the church. I'm just saying in Ecclesia, that's what it was. In Sparta, an Ecclesia met, which was made up of soldiers from the army. So when we look at the meaning of the word, it helps us to understand what the church of Jesus Christ should be. See, if you understand what an Ecclesia is, there's no spectators. It's not a spectator sport. There's no spectators in Ecclesia. It's a gathering of active participants. And the New American Standard shows this really great in one verse. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.26. Notice it's not a spectator sport. It says, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one as a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for what? Edification. See, this helps us because in an ecclesia, it's not meant to be a spectator sport. An ecclesia is not about geography like the Catholics have assigned parishes. It's not about a building. It's the people that are important, not the place. It's the people. This is why Peter tells us that the church is made up of living stones, 1 Peter 2.5, because we are to be living testimonies to Jesus Christ. See, I believe this, and this is a working definition, but I believe the church, the local church, is a community of regenerated believers who hold to the gospel message of saving faith taught in scriptures. And by review, saving faith is the belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died and rose again to pay one's personal penalty for sin and the one who gives eternal life to all who trust him and him alone for it. That's the gospel. You need to know that, Christian. And I go on. In obedience to Scripture, definition of a church, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for what? Preaching? This is our purpose. Preaching, teaching, worship, prayer. And to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion, they are unified by who? The Spirit of God and scatter to fulfill the Great Commission to the glory of no one but our Savior. Now, we tend to define church a lot of different ways in this country by its size, a small church, big church, medium church, mega church. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible does not do that at all. Ecclesia is used of every size church in the New Testament. Sometimes the New Testament refers to a church in a house. Romans 16, 5 comes to mind. Likewise, greet the 
church, ecclesia, that is in their house. You can also jot down 1 Corinthians 16, 19 in that vein. Or a church in a city, sometimes it, it mentions that, like 1 Corinthians 1, 2, which we just read to the church of God, which is at what? Corinth, Corinth, church in a region. You can see that Acts 9, 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Judea, Galilee, Samaria, the church is always, always where the people are. See, this is important because the New Testament does not identify places as holy, places as sacred, meaning a church building is not holy, a church building is not sacred. They get the two-by-fours from the same lumber stores, guys. It's not sacred or holy in that way. Don't be mystical about it. Don't be Catholic about it. The church is about sacred people, holy people in position, growing in our condition in Jesus Christ, where the people are is where the holiness of God is. The local church has an essential function in this world. We are essential. I said that during COVID from the pulpit. The church is essential. It restrains evil. It is salt and light to a dying world that rejects God. And sometimes even the lost get this better than the church. In 2015, when Ireland had a referendum on whether to allow gay marriage. And it was, of course, a landslide victory in support of it. Journalist Matthew Paris, who labels himself, this is him labeling himself, he labels himself as a gay atheist. He lamented the wishy-washiness of the church. Listen to his words. Matthew wrote this. Even as a gay atheist... I wince to see the philosophical mess that religious conservatives are making of their case. Is there nobody of any intellectual stature left in the church to frame the argument against Christianity's slide into just going with the flow of the social and cultural change? Can't these Christians see that the moral basis of their faith cannot be sought in the pollster's arithmetic? Would it have occurred, he writes, for a moment to Moses, let alone God, that he better defer to Molech worship because that's what most of the Israelites wanted to do. It must surely be implicit in the claim of any of the world's great religions that on questions of morality, a majority may be wrong. This should be evidence to Christians in particular. They need to only consider the fate of their Messiah and the persecution of adherence to the early church. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you, he said. And then Matthew said this, as a gay atheist, I want to see the church oppose same-sex marriage. He raises some tough questions, doesn't he? He absolutely does for what people are calling the church today. Well, the Bible is much more clear than the United States on what the church is. The Bible is abundantly clear. The Bible is clear that Jesus is very passionate about the local church. He died for the church, Ephesians 5.25. He will return for the church, Ephesians 5.27. He has promised that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But let's put some Bible on this. Let's look at where we build our foundation. We're going to start in Ephesians. Ephesians 3, we'll start in verse 1. 
For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul is explaining the church and God's desire to have a people unto himself during this time when Israel has been set aside. Now, the first thing, the first thing that I want you to notice as we walk through this is this phrase in verse two, the dispensation of the grace of God. All right, here we go. One of the lies often taught in Reformed seminaries and Bible colleges is that John Nelson Darby started dispensationalism in the early 1800s. No, he did not. It came from God, taught by the Apostle Paul. It's listed right there. That's where it came from. The lie that is out there that you hear ad nauseum on the radio and everywhere else is that dispensationalism was never taught in church history until Darby. Now, some of your translations may use other words to describe it, stewardship or administration. I really don't care what you call it, but it's taught right there in the Word of God. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with eternal life. See, that's another lie that is always put out there. They say dispensationalists teach salvation by works in different ages. Nothing could be further from the truth. In my days, I have met, and I mean this literally, thousands of men who teach dispensationalism. And I have never met a single person who believed this. Old Testament saints were saved by faith, looking ahead to the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel. If you believe the Bible in Ephesians 3, you're a dispensationalist. That's how it is. If you believe the Bible in Ephesians 3, you're a dispensationalist. See, it comes from the basic idea, you've heard me say this once or twice, that words have meaning. That God communicated those words in real time, in real history. So we use the word literal, just meaning we take words literally unless it makes no sense to take it literally. We use the literal grammatical, meaning we look at the grammar of the language used by God, not just the English, but the language that God used when he gave the word of God to us. And we have to put it into its historical context. The meaning of the words given have an inherent meaning in the culture in which they were written. This is why we call it the literal grammatical historical method of interpretation. And our goal as a church is to always, always, always look for God's intended meaning in Scripture. Not your opinion, not my opinion. Who really cares? It's God's intended meaning. I don't care what your feeling is that you think it says. I don't think about your mystical approach. I care about God's intended meaning. And if you do this, Christian, with a literal method of interpretation, you will see in Romans 9 through 11 that the church is not the nation of Israel. It cannot be denied. And you will see in Ephesians 3 that the church was hidden in ages past. And this takes you to dispensationalism, right to the front door of it. See, dispensationalism is born out of Scripture. It is the understanding that salvation to eternal life has always been the same, by faith. But there are different plans and purposes of God in history. God had a perfect man, Adam, live in a garden. I love my garden, but God hasn't asked me to do that. 
Once Adam fell into sin, God still instructed and received worship outside of the garden. God had Noah build an ark and human governments were established. God has never asked me to build an ark. Can Ham, yes, I guess, but... <laughs> Abraham was given the promise of a people, a land, and a kingdom. Moses was given the law, which was to teach people how to have fellowship with God and with one another. Nothing more. That's what the law was about, how to have fellowship with God and with one another. It had nothing to do with salvation. The Mosaic law had nothing to do with salvation, everything to do with teaching the people how to worship, how to live with one another in fellowship of community of God's people. The Mosaic law was for the nation of Israel. Read the book of Galatians. Settles that. The church is not the nation of Israel. Israel's not the church. This is what Ephesians 3 is all about. Now, if you're reading Ephesians chapter 3, you probably should notice that Paul repeatedly used the word mystery in both verse 3, verse 4, and we'll again see this in verse 6, and we'll see this again in verse 9. And in verse 4, he refers it to the mystery of Christ. The mystery that Paul is referring to is not some dime store novel or some mystical dark strange secret a mystery in the bible refers to something that was hidden but now has been revealed and that's what paul is about to tell us in verse 5 watch what he says he says which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of this promise in christ through what the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Other ages, this mystery was not known. Other dispensations, this mystery was not known, but now told to the apostles and prophets by the Spirit of God. When you attack dispensationalism, you're attacking God's message. Let that sink in. But what was the mystery? Well, it's verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the Gospels. What that means is just simply this. Jews and Gentiles together in the body of Christ made possible through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Israel is no longer center stage. They will be again in the tribulation. God is doing a new work, a brand new work right now through the church. If you don't understand these basic, and I do mean these are basic concepts from the word of God, you're going to have a hard time knowing what the church is. You're going to have a hard time. Now, we talk about the purpose of God's work in our lives, and it is to have fellowship with God. And where do we get that? Well, we base this off of 1 John, written to believers, where John, writing as an apostolic witness for Jesus Christ, said this, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have what? Fellowship with us. Who's that? That's the apostles. And truly, our fellowship is with who? The Father and His Son. Jesus Christ. That's it right there. See, we see this same teaching from Paul now in Ephesians. Watch, and starting in verse 8, he says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, I love his humility. What a great man of God. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship. Do you see it? 
fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through who? Jesus Christ. He's the creator. To the intent and now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. See, God revealing his truth about the church to Paul, that the Jews and Gentiles would have a new fellowship centered upon Jesus Christ. This would take place in the church. God's grace has been poured out on us. The church is not an afterthought. God knew that Israel would reject him. This is all made possible because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. The church is founded on Jesus. Ephesians 2.20 says this, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. He's the one who made the church possible. He is the one who promised to build his church and everything we do must be centered on him. It's for his glory that we serve. But go back to Ephesians 3.10. Notice the church is the demonstration. I love this. The demonstration of God's wisdom to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Telling us that the spiritual forces, the angels, the demons, they look on. The glorious mystery of reconciliation between Jew and Gentile through the gospel. The angels watch. They wonder. They're in awe over the infinite mercy and wisdom of our God, while the demonic powers gnash their teeth in fury as God rescues sinners from their grip. You probably know the name Rich Mullins, Christian musician from the 80s and 90s. One of his close friends, Eric Hawk, told about being with Rich in a worship service only a few days before Rich died in a car accident. Now, some friends wanted to have a a gathering to praise God, much exactly like what we did here on Friday night. That was a glorious time. They encouraged everyone to bring an instrument and play it, and Eric said the music just sounded awful, just awful. It was horrible. Those who were leading were out of tune. Someone asked Eric and Rich to step in to lead the group for the rest of the evening. Rich was, if anything, he was blunt. And he went up to the microphone And he said this, I love to be in church. I love to listen to people sing and play in their hearts. And then he added, in my profession, in contemporary Christian music, we worry about being in tune and sounding good. But this music is the music that is most pleasing to God because it is so real and it comes from the hearts of the children of God. And as he said this, Rich, he got choked up. And Eric said it was the last time before his death that he saw Rich cry. Church was emotional for Rich. Not because of how exciting church can be and worship was, but because he believed he was communing with the saints before a holy and righteous God in heaven. It was said of him after his death, for rich, even an hour in a bad church was better than not going at all. I hope you feel this way about church Christians. I do. That's why I'm here today. I don't understand people who don't want to study God's word. Not believers. And I don't understand People, believers who don't want to worship or be together as the body of Christ. I just don't get it. Something's wrong if that's your attitude. If church is last on your agenda, something's wrong with your heart. I believe with all my heart in the local church. It's one of the primary motivations, that and doodles. I stepped out of conference ministry so I could be a part of a local body of believers. Local churches are God's vehicles in this present dispensation which this dispensation, by the way, lasts right up to the rapture 
of the church. Local churches are vehicles, the key to transformed lives in Jesus Christ. A local church is extremely important. This means, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a high calling here. And this means we must never lose sight of this. Over the coming weeks, we're going to come back to this idea of the local church. But for this morning, I want us to focus on one more key passage found in Matthew 16, when Jesus first introduced the church. He said in Matthew 16, we'll start with verse 18, he said, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. If you want to understand the church, you better understand these verses. And it takes us back a few verses to verse 16, where Peter answers Jesus, because Christ asked him in verse 15, he said, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Very important statement in this text. Very important statement. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus told Peter that God the Father had revealed this truth to him. But it, when you go back to verse 18, you need to know the Greek play on words that is present because it's not clear in the English translations, not clear at all. Peter, the Greek word petros, means a loose stone. Petra means a large mass of rock, which is translated in the New King James as rock. Now, the false church of Rome misinterpreted this to say that Peter was the first pope. They are wrong on this, dead wrong. They say that he is the rock that the church is built upon. 1 Peter 2.5 tells us that we are living stones. It says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Tuck that concept of living stones in the back of your head, little stones that stand as memorials to Christ. Now, Jesus is the massive rock here, the rock, the bedrock of our faith in verse 16, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the main thing. The church wasn't being built upon Peter. It was being built upon the son of God. This statement, by the way, here that Christ will build his church. It is in our entire plan here. See, when I was interviewed and I was asked by the committee what I would do to make this church grow, because it, it definitely needed some growth. I told them loud and clear this verse. That was it. I said this verse, that God builds his church, that I wouldn't worry about it, that I would preach God's word. I would follow the Bible, and God would build his church as he saw fit. That's what I told them. And if that means God had only 20 people in mind for Pioneer Baptist Church, I have to be content with that. And by the way, that's a lot easier to pastor. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> if that means 200, fine. It's not my church. Don't refer to it as Mark's church. It's not my church. It belongs to Jesus Christ and Christ alone. I'm just a servant. So do not hear me on this. Do not, and trust me that I mean this, do not come to me with something we need to do in order to help God build his church. There is no other strategy that we need other than that God is more than capable of using us to build his church. We just need to be faithful. 
we need to be faithful. God's program right now is the church of Jesus Christ. And notice he says he would build stone by stone, 1 Peter 2.5. Jesus would, future, build his church in the future. Because at the point of Matthew 16, there is no church yet. The church was not in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Believers saved by grace through faith are the stones added on. And against this, the gates of hell will not be able to hold out. But remember that a key is a symbol of authority. But what authority would Peter have? Well, Peter would have the privilege, and this is very important to your understanding of the flow of the New Testament. Peter would have the privilege and authority of giving access to the kingdom by sharing the gospel to different groups of people. Now, this would include the Jews in Acts 2 and 3. This would include the Samaritans in Acts 8. This would include the Gentiles in Acts 10. All three groups of people, Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, were reached first by Peter. Peter. And each time you see the Spirit of God come to these people. And Peter's mission was to give access to the future kingdom of God. By how? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So by extension, all believers now have this same authority. So what is Christ telling Peter? He was letting him know of the importance of having the message which unlocks entrance into the kingdom of heaven. This is not an earthly kingdom here and now. Get that out of your mind. This is the kingdom of heaven. And if you just read verse 19 in Matthew, you could walk away with the wrong idea that this authority was given to Peter and to Peter alone. But if you read the totality of the New Testament, you see the other statements giving this to the other apostles and through them to the rest of the church. Just the Great Commission alone in Matthew 28. You might have heard of this. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. Amen. So based on simple statements like this, we look at Matthew 16, 19, and we understand that every regenerated child of God by faith has the right to tell a person who trusts in the gospel of Christ that they're going to be heaven bound. We have that right. And to tell those that reject the gospel on earth that they will be bound from that right. Meaning that if a person rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will have no right to eternal life with Christ. What I want you to take away from this, Jesus giving the keys of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't giving just these keys to Peter, not even just to the first disciples. And let me tell you something even more important, Christian. He wasn't giving the keys just to individual believers. Meaning, if you don't see the local church as an important need, you better see it here. These keys are given to the body of Jesus Christ, to the church, not just individual believers. He was giving these keys to the church as a group. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he left the church of Jesus Christ to carry on his work. The local church stands in the place of Christ to represent him while he is gone. To be a faithful believer in Jesus Christ, hear this please, to be a faithful believer in Jesus Christ means to be a faithful part of a local body of believers. You can't have one without the other. It's not possible. But there's still more here. See, the wording between verse 18, church, 
and kingdom in verse 19, vastly different words, vastly different words. This should alone signal to anyone reading this that Jesus was not identifying the church with the kingdom of God. Can't be. Introducing the kingdom at this point should have made it clear to the disciples that the church and the kingdom are not one and the same. The church, the local church, is God's program for this present age. And the kingdom is God's program for the future, which will be inaugurated at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And here is why studying eschatology, just meaning the end times, here's why this is absolutely critical to your faith. Jesus said, it is the church's responsibility to be proclaiming the message of the coming kingdom of Christ. But if you don't know about the future, if you haven't studied the end times, if you don't care about the coming kingdom of Christ, how are you going to tell anybody about it? Kingdom of heaven consistently refers to the future messianic kingdom. It's the same kingdom that Christ referred to throughout his ministry. And Peter was told that he would have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, keys represent authority. Now, if I were to entrust the keys to my home to someone, what would that mean? It would represent that I was entrusting the authority to walk into my home. That would be true. You would have access to the door. And you could also present the opportunity to enter my home to others, couldn't you? Sure, you could. And this is the way that Jesus was using the idea of a key in regard to his kingdom. Peter was entrusted by Christ as a steward of the gospel message. Peter could open the door to the kingdom by presenting the gospel message. And this is what he does in Acts 2. This is what he does in Acts 3. This is what he does in Acts 8. This is what he does in Acts 10. The confusion around binding and loosing is just simply because we've lost the cultural understanding of the words used. Binding and loosing were expressions that were used by the rabbis that mean exclude or include, to forbid or permit. Peter and the rest of the apostles, as seen in Matthew 28, had the authority to permit or forbid people from entering God's kingdom simply by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who believe the gospel have been loosed, permitted on earth and in heaven the privilege of entering into the kingdom of God when Christ ushers it in at his second coming. Those who reject the gospel will be bound, not permitted into the kingdom of God. Christian, you have a solemn obligation in the church age to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is your responsibility and your privilege. It's an obligation. When people come to know Christ, Colossians 1.13 tells us this, that they become citizens of the coming kingdom of God. It's 3.30 in the morning. You're sound asleep. Suddenly, the light comes on in your room. You open your eyes only to see a stranger standing in your doorway. Sounds like the beginning of a horror movie. But this actually happened to Andy Armstrong of Alexandria, Minnesota. And the stranger in his doorway had just miraculously survived a very devastating car accident. See, Andy had forgotten to lock a house door before going to bed that night. And that is how James Sunby found his way inside his home. Now, Andy was forceful and told the man to leave. But James, with his face banged up, his sleeves bloodied, he replied, Oh, man, I'm sorry. I think I'm in the wrong house. I crashed my car. 
Well, he refused help, and he left the house with Andy's shoes on. And Andy went out to check his house, and he noticed there was blood everywhere. I mean, there was blood on the kitchen counter, and there's a little bit on the floor. So he called the police, and they found James in the neighborhood about 20 minutes later. But with a little bit of time, it became clear what had happened to him. See, James was a bad driver. James had blown through a stop sign at a T in the road. He just didn't see it, so he blew right through it. He then barreled through a yard and launched his car off of an embankment of about 35 to 40 feet. Now his car, to make this even more amazing, his car cleared the open water on the lake below before landing on a little bit of ice on the lake that was left because it was spring and the ice was melting. Now he actually had no drugs in his system and he had no alcohol in his system, but he sure didn't remember what happened to him. <laughs> Very fortunate to be alive. It's a little bit like the guy that was on Vine during the earthquake. Fortunate to be alive. That's what we are. Not just here and now, but in Jesus Christ. Amen? One of the things that we have to wrestle with as a local church is that people are going to wander into our lives, maybe even through the doors of the church, coming with a profound trauma, a hurt, not a physical hurt. I'm not talking about that, but maybe a little stunned, maybe a little dazed, maybe a little confused by something that has happened in their life. You know, a lot of bad things happen in this fallen world to people. A lot of bad things happen. And as a church, I want you to know that we have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And this helps us when we encounter hurting people, doesn't it? And Peter, he got on board with this. He eventually understood all this. In Acts 2, the church of Jesus Christ was born. The Holy Spirit came down to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem were troubled. The man who had claimed to be the Christ was dead. Now there was men walking around speaking in different languages. I mean, what is going on in Jerusalem? Empowered by God, Peter stood up and he preached Christ. In verse 22, he said, Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, you have crucified, you have put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. What did Peter do? He preached Jesus Christ. He pointed out their sin. He told them about the crucified Christ and how Christ had rose again. Peter explained the gospel. And we read this in Acts 2.41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, you think we got a church growth problem. That day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Peter's not done. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen had been killed for his faith. Chapter 8 starts out by telling us that Saul consented to Stephen's death. And then we read this in verse 3. It says, And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Well, now it was the church of Jesus Christ stunned and confused because Saul was going into their homes, dragging off people for their faith in Jesus Christ. So how did the church respond? Verse 4 is how they responded. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching what? 
the word. Amen. Now it was the church that was out doing it. And Peter ends up with the Samaritans preaching Christ. Then in Acts 10, Peter's still not done. There's a Gentile named Cornelius, a centurion, one who feared God, but had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had never been told the old, old story that we love and cherish so much of Christ's love for us. So God uses supernaturally an angel to bring Peter and Cornelius together. And so look at what Peter tells this confused man in Acts 10. Verse 38 says this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they killed. Jesus Christ died by hanging on a tree. Peter tells Cornelius about Jesus, about his death, referred to in scripture by hanging on a tree. Here is Jesus. He died, Cornelius. Verse 40. God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. See, Peter, he points to the resurrection of Christ. He, Peter, testifies that Jesus is the judge, meaning that Christ is God. And then we read these beautiful words, starting with verse 43. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him, sounds like a gospel message, doesn't it? Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And while Peter was still speaking the words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who had heard the word. See, first Peter preached to the Jews in Jerusalem, then the Samaritans, then the Gentiles, because Peter, as a part of the church, like us, had the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And for those who heard the word of the gospel, for those who believed the gospel, they received the Holy Spirit of God. Do you see, and I hope nothing else for this morning, do you see the consistent and simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Peter presented? Peter told these people the same thing we've been saying, that saving faith is a belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died and rose again to pay one's personal penalty for sin and the one who gives eternal life to all who trust him and him alone for it. If you've been coming here for six months or more and you are not clear on the gospel of Jesus Christ, at some point, Christians, that's on you. At some point, that's on you. If you have been coming here and are not sharing the gospel of Christ, I hope you're starting to see that it is the heart of the purpose of the church because nothing else we do here matters if we're not preaching Jesus Christ. Not just here, Christians, but in our homes, at our work, and in our lives. As we meet people dazed and confused, hopefully not going off an embankment, be like Peter. Preach Jesus Christ, because we, church, have been given the keys, and it's time to use them. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.